This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by my very own Friday Update. Would you like to get a short email from me, never more than five bullet points long, giving you my take on the week's news from across the world of communication? This might be the latest reports, books, podcasts, conferences, campaigns that have caught my eye during the week. I always limit myself to just five nuggets of news so you can read it in record time, but still feel hopefully a little bit more informed, maybe even a little bit more uplifted as you end your week. Now, this is a subscriber only email, which was initially intended just for colleagues and clients. I don't post this content anywhere else. So you do need to sign up, but that's super easy. Simply go to abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash Friday and just pop in your email address. It's equally easy to unsubscribe at any time. So give it a try. That sign up page again, abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash Friday. And thank you very much if you do choose to be a subscriber. Hello and welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. This is a show dedicated to improving the way we communicate at work. Every fortnight, I invite a leading light from the world of communication, a practitioner, consultant, academic, author, to sit in my hot seat. My guest today is Martin Flegg, also known on the web as the IC Citizen. Martin is an internal communications specialist and consultant based in West Yorkshire in the UK. He has more than 20 years communications management consultancy and now teaching experience. He has worked in central government, financial services, legal services, and higher education. He is a qualified Chartered Institute of Public Relations Fellow, Chartered PR Practitioner, and a certified member of the Institute of Internal Communication. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We talk about the internal comms job market at the moment, what it means to practice internal comms ethically, We talk about real and proxy measures of internal comms success. And Martin talks us through one of my favourite measurement frameworks, the ICQ-10, developed by Dr. Kevin Ruck. And this was a new one on me. Martin explains why it's much better for your change communications to resemble a Roman invasion rather than a Norman conquest. Please enjoy this delightfully wide-ranging conversation with Martin Flegg. So, Martin, welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast. What a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Kate. I'm delighted to be here. And um, finally, after so long, I know you've been um, trying to hunt me down for a couple of seasons now, haven't you? So uh, here we are, finally here. (laughs) I've been trying to entice you for some time, Martin. (laughs) So yes, it's lovely to finally make this happen. 
So we are recording this show on Wednesday, the 6th of April. And when I suggested this date to you, you immediately said, I think probably without thinking about it, you said, oh, the first day of the new tax year. Now, are you happy to reveal to listeners something, you know, very personal up front? How do you happen to know so much about tax? (laughs) It's a bit of a well, not a, not a dirty secret, I suppose, but it's um, it is you know it's possibly something people don't know about me, which is like years and years ago, I trained to be a tax inspector. I worked in government for a long time, and I worked for the Land Revenue and the HM Revenue and Customs, which that which that became. And uh, yeah, I, I trained as a cadet inspector, and then became an accounting investigator. So tax is kind of or tax in the, in the kind of the UK sense is kind of part of my DNA, I suppose, after doing all of that training. But, but bizarrely, <laughs> that is how I actually got into into communications as a, a job and, and now a profession. Is there anything from those <laughs> early tax inspection days that you still use today? <laughs> I, think, I think there are. I mean, you know, being, being a tax inspector is about, you know, being being fairly analytical, I think, really. And, um, you know, looking at looking at people's books or your know, numbers or a situation and actually doing some research around that to kind of find out what the, what the truth is and to try and identify yes. whether they are, you know, they are concealing profits or something like that. But, you know, translating that into a kind of a comms, comms role, you know, at the, at the very heart of being a good community internal communicator or just a communicator or a PR person in general, is being able to understand the situation that you're trying to communicate about. And that's all about being able to do some, some decent research and some, some decent, decent analysis up front that enables you to draw out, you know, objectives to kind of define what it is that you're trying to communicate and what success might look like later on but also to develop strategies and plans fundamentally. You know, the research that I learned to do and the analysis that I learned to do as an inspector are things I've brought into my current career. Now, let's start with the very front page of your website, the IC Citizen. And that clearly states you have a manifesto. I love a manifesto, personally. <laughs> I think it's great. And I quote here, to democratise communication inside organisations. I'm just intrigued by that word democratise. What do you mean by it? We all kind of have a sense of what democracy is. And I I think in the current context of things that are happening in the world at the moment, that, you know, democracy is founded on the free flow of information and the right to have a say. So if you translate that into into an organisational context, you know, in organisations, there are lots of barriers to, to the free flow of information. So that can be silo working, politics, organisational hierarchies, awful channels that don't work and do the things that we want them to do. So those are all barriers to informing employees. Informing employees is a pretty critical part of internal comms and what we do. And perhaps the side of things that we're most familiar with as practitioners. But on the other side, there's the listening side. That's about having a say, you know, almost in the same, yes. almost in a sense of employees having a vote in how the organisation does stuff. So, you know, democracy, I think, is the, it's the confection of two of the, those two things. And to be a successful telecommunicator, you need to address both sides of that equation. And, you know, to truly democratise the way that, that communication happens in organisations and to build, a, build democratic structures on which that communication can be founded. So that's really what democratising yes. telecoms is about in, in that kind of sense. But also, I think, and actually the reason that it kind of originally popped into my head was about more sort of broadly about the profession. 
and you know what it what what do we need to do as a collective to be more effective as a profession overall and to kind of reach those lofty heights of being a kind of a strategic business function which we aspire to and that's about making sure that knowledge skills are shared in a kind of a democratic way within the profession so that you know people can learn how to be better so you know that's about the show we are a very sharing a very sharing profession aren't we and we do share things quite liberally with each other you know ideas support um, advice and so on um so it's already there and it's something that we can build on i think to be able to take us to the kind of the next level on our journey to become a true profession yes you know in the future that's a, a neat segue into my next question, because you've written that doing a CIPR internal comm certificate course was, and this is a quote, nothing less than a revelatory experience for me. In other words, it completely changed the way you thought about internal communications, you know, what it was for, how you practiced it. Can you just talk us through how your thinking changed after having done that course? Just to go back a bit further than that, it was, you know, how did I get into internal comms? from being a tax inspector and that was probably because I wasn't a very good tax inspector I suppose but um what I was, <laughs> but what I was good at good at, at, at doing was writing and that was kind of picked up by my you know by, by my boss and I was encouraged to actually go and write guidance technical guidance to start off with for other inspectors and then more broadly for other 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 groups in the in the department and out of that segued into a marketing communications role in HMRC. And then as a result of that one day ended up with internal comms manager in my job title. And it was entirely, it was entirely my fault, I suppose, that that ended because, you know, you stood your head above the parapet and one day door stepped to the, door stepped the director that I was working for at the time and basically said, the internal comms is awful around here, Jim. You need to give it to me and let me sort it out. And that was Jim Harrow who's, who's permanent secretary of HMRC now and uh, Jim said to me turn around and said well okay you can do it then get on with it make <laughs> stuff happen Martin were his words to me and I did I made I made oh, loads of stuff happen Kate so you know in a way that I had no idea what internal comms was about you know or what, what good practice looked like or anything certainly nothing about the theory that underpinned any of our anything so I just went ahead and created lots of stuff invented channels wrote lots of stuff, sent loads of stuff out, emails, newsletters, events, travelled the length and breadth of Britain with, you know, roadshows and things, delivering delivering stuff to employees. And, um, you know, for the most part, some of that worked and some of it didn't. And then one day somebody said to me, why do you think that worked then, Martin? I didn't know the answer. So I thought I'd better find out about that. And it was about the time, I suppose, when that seminal report was published Engaging for Success by David McLeod and Nita Clark. And I know you've had them on the show, Katie, and they've talked about that report. And I was you know, working in government at the time because it was a government commissioned report. I felt the ripples of that inside the civil service mm. and that the cabinet office proceeded to, you know, give lots of advice and guidance to departments about how to exploit these new findings around, you know, internal, internal communication and employee engagement. I kind of, wanted to think and, and find out more about that. That led me to sign up to do the CIPR's Intelcom Certificate course, which is run by PR Academy. Just going on that course and learning a bit of theory, learning about the things that really underpin good practice was just 
yeah, I, as I say, it was a revelatory experience and I kind of finally appreciated about why things did work and why things didn't. Right from day one on that course, we're able to bring those things back into the organisation where I was working and put them into practice and to kind of refine the things that I was doing or stop doing things altogether because they were just, you know, bad practice, basically. Yeah. Having that little bit of, that bit of theory behind you, I think, is that, and that bit of that sort of that academic knowledge almost is, is the thing that can really make a difference in your career. And you've gone on now to actually teach modules of that course yourself, am I right? Yeah, I do, yeah. I mean, I, I remember sitting, sitting in some of the, the workshops when I was doing that course years ago and, and thinking, I'd really like to teach this course. And um, anyway, be careful what you wish for because um, wow. here I am today yeah, teaching that course, albeit in a different format because things move on, of course. But um, but yeah, and it's, it's something that I really enjoy doing and, and you know, I've got over 20 odd years experience in this game now and it's just to be able to share that with people who are kind of new to the profession is a huge privilege. Almost get them on the right footing in a way that I perhaps didn't get off on the right footing because I kind of fell into internal communications in a way that so many of us fall into it yes. from something entirely different. It's a great privilege to teach on that course. I learn something almost every day from the books but also from the people that I'm teaching it's uh, it's an incredible it's an incredible experience this might be a hard question to answer but is there is there a common moment or is there a common module or exercise that you do and you suddenly realize ah these attendees are really starting to get it now is there often one particular framework there absolutely is and that's that is the employee engagement stuff, right. which is, you know, engagement's one of those one of those words, isn't it, that we bandy around in organisations and people say, oh, we need to engage our people with this or create some engaging content about this topic. What do they actually mean by that? You know, it's just one of those words that is, that is so so prevalent in day-to-day practice. It, you know, one of the questions that I ask, I ask the students is, what does engagement mean to you? in the context of your organisation. If there's 20 people on the course, they'll give you 20 different answers. But actually, when you start to explain to them, you know, those the findings from the McLeod and Clark report and how employee engagement is influenced by in telecommunications and how to do that with things like creating a good strategic narrative, making sure that leaders communicate in the right way, the scales kind of fall from their eyes and they think, ah, that's really what, engagement's about it is not about content it is more to do with the fundamental stuff of helping leaders to communicate mm. effectively like managers to communicate effectively and how to really leverage things like the you know making sure organizations do the things that they say they're going to do mm-hmm. you've highlighted i think you've called it the uncomfortable truth that anyone can create and distribute content inside our organisations today. And you say, again, this is a quote, this should be reason enough for all internal communicators to keep asking ourselves the question, what makes us so unique, special and indispensable? I'm going to kind of throw that question back to you, if I may, and just say, you know, how would you answer (laughs) that question? Where does our true value lie? The reason that I back sort of said that you know that you know anybody can create content in organizations and i think you know digital digital stole our uniqueness because i think we were probably for years and years probably 
renowned and known for being the people that could produce great content in organizations, whether that was written content or, or something, something that was a bit richer. And then digital came along, all these digital platforms and enterprise social networks and everything. We moved out of content creation into content curation. And there was a, you know, there was a big narrative around that and a big, big debate about that, about, you know, whether internal comms now was about curation of content rather than creation of content itself. And that was because, you know, digital was there and employees were generating their own content and we were just kind of like tapping into that and using it and adapting it for our own, for our own reasons and our own purposes. So digital kind of stole our uniqueness, I think, probably about maybe about a decade ago now or going back a few years, certainly. Yeah. That should have been our cue to kind of think about what is our real purpose and I think we've been scrabbling around to that purpose as a profession probably for a few years now. The pandemic's probably exacerbated that in terms of our focus and the things that we have focused on. You know, we've kind of hooked our way to things like, you know, the well-being agenda, corporate social responsibility, ESG, all those kind of topics of the moment. And we've kind of, some people have kind of tried to adapt those into kind of a new purpose for internal comms. And all that overlooks, I think, what, what is it that makes us special and unique? And that special and uniqueness is something that I call the knowledge. And essentially, the knowledge is the thing that we teach on courses like the, like the internal comm certificate, which is the fundamentals of practice. So how to do research, how to set objectives, how to create a plan, what on earth is strategy and how do you use it? How do you measure internal communication? How do you use theory, communication theory, for example, persuasion theory, change communication theory? How do you use all that theory and translate it into something that you can actually use in day-to-day -day practice in organisations? Um, and also, finally, I think something that's really interesting and I think is really important, which is ethics. You know, how do you practice internal communication ethically? On all of those those things are kind of the cornerstones, the bedrock, the foundation of good in self-communication. And I think that we consistently overlook those things in favour of the stuff that's a bit more mm. bright and shiny and in the moment, but actually the thing that will give us the edge, mm. you know, and the longevity as a profession are those foundational things. Some people know about those things and some internal communicators don't. And actually if they did, even know a fraction of what, what that knowledge what that knowledge represents, they would be better practitioners um, in the long term. And I guess also the creativity, so the fun stuff of creating stuff that we love, we all still love that. If you've got the foundational knowledge, then that creative stuff, for want of a better word, is likely to be far more relevant, powerful, effective. You wrote a really interesting blog recently. It was actually about scepticism. Oh, yes. <laughs> There's a line in there that I loved, which was basically saying that, did your success just happen by chance or was it by design? And I thought, oh, that's such a good question. Where that blog came from is that, um, you know, I think scepticism is a real skill. I think all of us need to be sceptics, you know, particularly in the modern, modern day context of disinformation and you know, fake news and all that sort of stuff. You know, we need to have a question in mind and we need to, we need to look for the proof of things that, that people, people present as being fait accompli or the, 
of you know the definitives in definitives in in life and and in telecommunication there's, there's a lot of experiential opinion shared about things that worked for me in my organization and therefore it must be something that will work for you in your organization now as we know um, all organizations are different there are subtle differences in things like culture hierarchies the way that places are managed the people that work there you know sort of you know the sort of types of people you know i worked in universities for a long time you know full of academics that really changes the flavor and the the, the nature of how you do in telecommunications in an organization like that so you know something that you know might work in a in a financial services organization try and bring it into academia it would fall flat on its face because you know the academics would just not engage with that i am saying that academics aren't fun people because they are um, in their own way but actually you know you've got to tailor what you do to the place where you work now just presenting something as a really great idea that works for everybody and a lot of that experiential stuff is presented in that way in terms of you know you must do this all this is our, this is the ideal may not necessarily translate into your organization so skepticism is something i think we all need to practice in terms of questioning why that did work and did it mm. work by accident or did it work by design because mm. there's a lot of activity in organizations in telecoms activity that is founded on nothing you know there's no objectives there there's no research there if it did work that was good luck probably um, mm. but certainly not by design and uh, we probably waste a lot of effort doing things you know at the behest of stakeholders usually creating stuff and deploying stuff because they want to see it they want to see that activity without really thinking about what it is that they're trying to achieve so actually asking the skeptical question why do you want to do that what are you trying to achieve can be quite helpful to help stakeholders get a better outcome out of those communications mm, great advice there let's talk about outcomes a little bit more I've heard you use the phrase proxy measures when it comes to internal comms success. And I just love the idea. That phrase proxy measures is brilliant. Just for listeners, can you kind of explain what you mean by proxy measures and why you're slightly cynical or wary of them? And is there a better way of measuring our impact? There is a better way, but let's let's talk about what proxy measures are and what they look like and, and why to probably try and avoid them. So I think most organisations will do something every year, like an, an annual engagement survey, or they might do pulse surveys or something like that. These are often the yardsticks by which telecommunicators get judged, because we know it's the truth that communication influences engagement. We know that the proof's there in the McLeod and Clark report, and we've been playing to that agenda for years. But employee engagement employee experience however you want to kind of frame it isn't really not just about communication there are so many other factors that kind of feed into that and they end up being measured by those those uh, surveys and, and, and other instruments that are kind of like that so do you want to be beaten by a yardstick that isn't really your yardstick um because it's not really measuring it isn't really measuring your um you know, how effective the thing that you do is, you know, the actual communications that you do, the channels that you operate in the organisation, you've kind of got to find a better yardstick. And that's why those things are proxy measures. And we sometimes we sometimes latch on to those or cling on to them because there really isn't anything better in organisations to be able to do that with. 
the situation is exacerbated, I think, by the fact that sometimes our skills in measurement are actually quite poor because we're not really numbers people, let's face it. And also because some of the tools that we use, some of the platforms that we use and some of the channels that we use, you can't get very good data out of them. That's a problem as well for us because that means that the data that we can get is perhaps a bit flaky and perhaps a little bit not very credible and certainly not something that you want to run to a senior leader with and say, oh, look at this. You know, isn't this great evidence of, of what we're doing? Because leaders usually ask questions when you put numbers in front of them. Yes. So if those numbers are very, are very robust and very credible, um, you can put yourself into a fairly uncomfortable place. So what's the better way? Well, a better way is to actually persuade people in your organisation that you can do some kind of survey or some kind of research that actually relates to internal communications itself. So that's the way that the channels work, the way that leaders communicate, the way that line managers communicate, the way that you measure things, and actually, ultimately, how those things, which are true enablers of, of, of employee engagement, feed into employee engagement and relate to that. So Dr. Kevin Rook, who I know who you've had on the, on the show as well in the past, is, is one of my idols in internal communication. I'm very lucky that I work for his organisation as a, as a tutor on some of the courses that his, uh, that his company run. But he has a brilliant tool called the ICQ10, which is basically a sort of framework for putting together an internal communication survey. And I've used this myself in, in different places and different organisations. It really, really does work. And it really gets you to focus down on the things that are really important in internal communication and the things that really make a difference. So things like channels, so asking employees, how useful do you think your channels are? What information do employees want? How well informed do they feel? How good are senior managers at communicating? How good are line managers at communicating? How satisfied are employees with their, their opportunities to be, to be heard and to be listened to? And when they are listened to, how satisfied are they that their views are seriously taken into account and actually things are done with that feedback? Those are kind of like the foundational questions. But then later on in this, in this survey tool, are three other sort of important categories of questions that are around employee and organisational engagement. So, you know, I'm very interested in what happens at my organisation because some employees are and some employees aren't. That's an indicator of how bought in they are to the organisation. I care about the future of my organisation is another sort of question or question set that you could put into that as well. And I put extra energy into helping my organisation achieve its objectives. Now, most people will know that employee engagement is about something you know, called discretionary, extra discretionary efforts. So that kind of tests that thing as well. The beauty of this survey tool, and you'll have to read a bit more about it separately if you want to know more, is, is that there's a correlation that can be established between the first seven questions about channels and senior managers and so on and the last three that are about organizational engagement and you can see from those correlations what in your organization is making a difference to organizational engagement and it gives you some clues about the things that you're doing right and the things that you're doing wrong so it's a really good tool for actually having a having a better yardstick to be beaten by than those proxy measures and those proxy sticks that just don't really measure internal communication in its entirety. 
we will put links to the ICQ10 definitely in the show notes. I've used aspects of that survey tool myself. If nothing else, it's a massively helpful reminder of the range of questions you need to ask in order to really get under the skin of communications in your organisation. Because so often, you, as you say, you can focus on channels, but then potentially miss, I feel my voice is heard. I have opportunities to speak up. Or you forget about face-to-face communication. Face-to-face is still the most powerful. Yeah, definitely. How do line managers communicate? How do leaders communicate? I guess the only other thing I'm noticing, and I don't know if you're noticing this as well, is there seems to be a shift in our work from just producing regular channels of communication and moving more towards campaigns. So whether that's campaigns to sort of protect brand internally, health and safety, values campaigns. And that's an opportunity to sort of bake in a measurement exercise up front or as part of the activation campaign. So it doesn't have to be an additional activity, if you like, but it's part of the campaign. Are you seeing that shift as well? I mean, there's lots of different things you can measure in internal comps, isn't there? And you know, you can actually measure the function itself, I suppose, which is really kind of what ICQ 10 is all about. But then you can also make sure that, you, that you've got those measures baked into campaigns as well. And, you know, campaign, campaigns are probably something, you know, there's a kind of a terminology and a kind of a concept which are more kind of akin to external comms perhaps and kind of PR and marketing and things like that. And actually, we probably talk about in telecoms running campaigns, but they're not really campaigns. They're just kind of comms plans, really, aren't they? But a campaign, in terms of, in terms of in kind of a broader sense, you could probably build a campaign like around something like a change programme, for example. So change programmes tend to be quite long-lived. They last sometimes for years. So you kind of you run a campaign you know, which, which is almost kind of like a sequence of individual plans. Now, you might have measures for those individual plans because those plans might be about point issues, like changes in processes or changes in terms and conditions or something like that, which were often are often in change programs. But as a campaign, you can measure the campaign as well in its entirety by perhaps looking at some higher level objectives and aims of that campaign that kind of relate more to the kind of the overall objectives and aims of the of the change program if it's a change program that you're in a campaign about there's lots of different levels that you can do measurements at you know in organizations with internal comms i always say measure the stuff that matters yes so don't get too bogged down with trying to measure everything for years we've been again beaten by another stick which is the measurement stick, which is, you know, you know, in telecoms, we need to measure everything. You know, we need to know exactly how everything's, how everything's working. But actually, we can't do that. Practically, we just don't have the time. Sometimes mm. we don't have the skills and knowledge or the tools. So pick the things that matter to, to measure those because those are the things that you'll be able to demonstrate your value through more. It's interesting. One of the, I was, we were talking about objectives on the course the, the other week and one of the students said to me, so are you saying that I need an objective for absolutely everything that I do? Even if somebody comes to me and says, can you put this on the internet? Do I need an objective for that? And I went, no, 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 no. You've got to be sensible about this. You know, you can't say to say, so what's your objective? What, what's your objective for putting this um, particular article on the internet about? Whatever it might be, because they'll probably just like say to you, look, look, just do it, will you? 
um and yeah. probably not be very polite about it but it's um you know yeah and my answer to that was you know no no you don't need to measure absolutely everything all these point things like that it's more about thinking about what are the important things that i need to measure and if you you know if you've got an annual annual communications plan in your organization for internal comms you might at the start of the year want to sit there and say right okay these are the things at these points in the year where we want to measure those things because those are the things that the organization really cares about or that's going to make most difference for the organization or where I need to demonstrate my value as an internal communicator the most. So yeah, yeah, be selective about what you measure. No, you're absolutely right. And also we hear a lot, don't we, about survey-itis inside organisations and people getting sick of being asked questions. So we have to be quite respectful with people's time. This pandemic has resulted in a lot of people re-examining all aspects of their lives and especially their work. And if listeners are looking for a, a new role, and it's possible that they are, the resignation rates would suggest that there are a lot of people looking for new roles at the moment. You've called the IC job market, at least in the UK, like the lawless wild west. <laughs> Tell us why you, you called it that. I'm fascinated. <laughs> I think it comes from partly from personal experience. And I, I took the decision probably 18 months ago now to, to become independent as, as an independent consultant with my own business and everything. And I think part of that was born out of that frustration of interviewing for jobs and going through that kind of recruitment process. And, and, God, and heaven knows, you know, there are some awful recruitment processes out there um, and recruiters who don't really know what they're looking for um, in, mm. in telecommunications. And I think, you know, there's, there, there is a huge, a huge gap that doesn't seem to be getting any any smaller between two alternate realities that we exist in as internal comps people, particularly when we're trying to get hired, which is the things that our professional bodies tell us that we need to know about and be skilled in, and the things that we learn on qualification courses, such as the one that I teach. And then there's this other reality, which is the reality of getting hired and what people who do the hiring are looking for and almost entirely that's often around experience 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 and nothing else and i suppose you know that's what makes recruitment the lawless wild western telecommunications because there are no standards there are no standards about what we need to know no standards about job titles no standards around salaries it is a very difficult market to navigate and to work out where from a job advert and in telecoms job advert sometimes where it sits in the kind of the organizational hierarchy how senior it is because sometimes even the even the salary for salaries put on it isn't indicative of that and also to try and work out what intel communications is for in the organization to mm. try and work out whether you'll be you know recruitment terminology a good fit for that because sometimes you know and this has happened to me and i know to other people who work in telecoms you've ended up in a job that was possibly sold as being something else but actually ends up being something quite different and there's nothing more frustrating than being an internal communicator in an internal communications role that is not the right fit for you yeah uh, that's quite a difficult difficult place to be and often it means that you're heading for the door much earlier than, than you thought the thought that you might be 
So because there are no standards, it is very difficult to navigate and it is a bit like the lawless Wild West. I think, you know, we're, we're on a, we've been on a journey for a few years now to professionalise in telecommunications as, as, a, as a practice. And I think we've done a great job on the supply side of that. So there are more of us getting qualified, more of us doing continuous professional development, more of us becoming members of professional bodies, definitely on the supply side things are looking quite good on the demand side less so and i think we all need to kind of ask ourselves in the profession what can we do to regularize that kind of demand side so that people start looking for the right thing yeah start looking for the genuine internal communicator and the genuine article rather than looking for just somebody who is you know maybe good at creating content you know content with something that we do but it's not the whole there's not the whole story or for people who can develop things like rich content like who are videographers perhaps or who are graphic designers because all these things get chucked into internal comms uh, job descriptions sometimes so what can we do to educate people who are looking for internal communicators about what good looks like and what we're actually getting trained to do and then maybe that that gap between those two alternate realities will start to narrow. What I have seen quite a lot of is clients who will come to me and say, as soon as I got into the role, I realised they just wanted me to SOS, send stuff out. (laughs) And they thought they were being hired for a a strategic role. Yeah, it's the problem. I think your point's so well made when you said, what is the role of internal communications inside the organisation? How is it perceived? I'm doing a piece of work at the moment where I'm speaking to a leadership team, one-on-one, six members of this leadership team. And, and it's really interesting to ask these individual leaders what they perceive the role and value of internal communications is. Now, they've got a very sophisticated understanding of it, so we're good. But I think that is crucial. It's almost the question you should be asking in your interview, isn't it? It is. And you know, Katie, it's a question that I have asked time and time again. You know, I, I call it the killer question. <laughs> you know, you just say to people at the end, you say, so what is internal communications for in this organisation? And you'll get all sorts of different answers. And actually, I think, you know, from what's said there, sometimes you can you can work out whether whether it's it's, you know, almost stay or run. <laughs> Let's be sensible. You know, some people are quite comfortable and very skilled at creating very good content that, you know, that hits the mark with employees and resounds with them. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that, you know, if, if that's not with you and that's the only thing that the organisation wants, then are you going to be happy in that role if you've got more of a kind of a strategic kind of aspect to your, you know, professional skill set and your, and your mindset? And actually you're not, just happy with sending out stuff and you want to be able to make a difference or to know that what you're doing is making a difference in the organization and you know if leaders won't let you do that um, because leaders have a very very big influence perhaps the biggest influence of all in organizations about what internal communications is for and how it's practiced inside the organization if you aren't in tune with that then you're going to find it quite frustrating and quite difficult to operate there and um you know there's, there's, a, there's a great there's a great book by uh, Liam Fitzpatrick and Sue Dewhurst 
Uh, it's the yellow book, but now it's the red book because they've just republished republished that. And I, I haven't got the red the red version yet, which is the updated version. But in the yellow book, the early chapters are about, are about what telecommunications is for and the value spaces that it occupies. You, if you look at those value spaces, that can be a starting point to kind of working out what it is that you really want to do in internal communication and the sort of practitioner that you want to be. And having got that kind of in, in the back of your head, when you are interviewing for jobs, that could kind of be your frame for then kind of work out, well, are these people on the same page as me when it comes to what internal comms is for and which value space it occupies and whether that's the same value space that I want to be in. It is important to ask those questions. And I'm thinking even in relation to content as well, because we've seen the shift even inside AB from a few years ago. And, and because we have been around for decades, it's perhaps easier to see the shift. But when mainly we employed ex-journalists and it was about getting the stuff out accurately, on time, without typos, factually correct. And now, well, they're not even called editors, they're called content managers. And it's about how does the content fit with the message framework of the organisation or the narrative of the organisation and the tone of voice of the organisation. So being more strategic with content, again, is a question that you need to ask, even if you're just going in at that level to design and write stuff. Would that be fair? Last year, I worked with a, with a housing association and um, good, good learning point that actually, actually writing content for people that work in housing associations is quite different from writing content for people that work in a government department or a university. And it's not just about, you know, the level of people's reading ability, ability sometimes. It's also about the corporate standards around, you know, how they say things. Yes. The narrative, as you say, what is the organisational narrative? What are the organisation's values? And, you know, how do you promote those values and include those values in, in kind of written, written and other content? So there are a huge amount of influences on content creation that you need to be aware of in an organisational context that perhaps you don't need to be aware of in more of a journalism type of role yes. or external comms, comms sort of role. We talk about internal brand, don't we? You know, organisations, yes. some organisations want to be on brand internally when it comes to communicating with their employees because it's really, you know, it's, it's important for their, you know, their employee value propositions and all those sorts of things. So, yeah. Creating content in an organized, inside an organization for internal consumption is quite different from creating mm. content for other purposes. I'm just curious about your shift then to becoming an independent consultant after having spent many years, I'm guessing, as a, as a paid employee. How are you finding it? And, and was it difficult to make that shift or did it just actually come naturally after a while of thinking about it? Thought about it for years and kind of almost been a kind of sort of an, an in and out sort of in an in and out sort of way i suppose really and kind of shifted out of probably you know doing permanent roles into kind of stuff that was more interim and then did a bit of freelance work on the side and then kind of went back sort of slightly in-house semi-permanently and it kind of took a long time to be quite honest and i guess i guess the pandemic was you know like some for so many other people was a was a big disruptor made me really think about what I wanted to do and the way that I wanted to work and the sort of work that I wanted to do as well. You know, after being in-house for many years, that was probably the thing that gave me the final shove 
onto the other side of the fence and, and become become truly independent as a consultant and freelancer. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a bit of a long journey, I think, actually. And um, you know, I'm enjoying it. There are no walls in working in this way. So when you work inside an organisation as an internal communicator, you are often bound by the four walls of the organisation, and your horizons are sometimes the walls of the organisation. You can't really see beyond that. And I see that sometimes with with some of the students that come onto the onto the course that I teach is that the the horizons are quite narrow across mm. their early career, you know, and they have they've only been in telecoms for for a, for a little while, and maybe this is the first job in telecoms, and they can't see that wider world that you and I are very familiar with because of the you know the the, the circles that we operate in and the network that we have and everything. People who are new to the, to the profession can't see that, and sometimes people that work in house all the time can't see that but you know there's a hugely rich ecosystem i think is a good way of describing it an intel comes ecosystem that is that is just it's just a constant voyage of discovery for me and i really enjoy working in that way now and not having those boundaries that kind of set me in a kind of a box about the things that i can do and can't do and i suppose also if people are employing you as a consultant or indeed as an interim they are actively looking for your outside, external, wide-ranging experience. That's, in effect, a lot of what they're paying for, I'm guessing. I think in-house sometimes it's more difficult difficult to get people to kind of buy into that think piece that needs to happen up front. So if you're going to do really great internal comms, there needs to be some thinking up front. And sometimes we're just not allowed to do that. You know, sometimes stakeholders don't want, don't want, they just want to see output, they want to see stuff happening, they want to see events happening, they want to see stuff going on the internet. You know, they want us to be, to be you know, constantly in that kind of output kind of mode and be able to see that. And sometimes we're not allowed or even encouraged to do that kind of think piece up front. You know, and, and you know, I worked in government for a long time and we you know, made it drummed into us by the government communication service that great communication is founded in great insight. But sometimes you're not allowed to do the insight. <laughs> So that means that sometimes the comms are effective or do even don't work at all. And that's, that, that's, that can be quite frustrating. Particularly if you, you are working really hard, um, as lots of Intel comms people have had during the pandemic and, and afterwards to kind of just keep the wheels on the bus, basically. Yes. So, you know, often, often people don't want to pay for that. You know, they don't want that think piece. They're probably more likely to kind of pay for and want that think piece if you are coming in to bring a kind of a more broader external perspective from other places that you've worked in. But I wouldn't say that you consistently get listened to or agreed with <laughs> <laughs> anymore as a consultant practitioner than you would as an in-house practitioner. You've still got to be credible and you've still got to have the knowledge to be able to bring that credibility to kind of the things that you suggest and things that you propose in terms of solutions to clients. You know, nobody's going to take anything at face value. No, but you will sometimes be able to say an uncomfortable truth that the IC team know and have tried to say before. Absolutely, definitely. Yeah, I think it's easy to do that sometimes because, I mean, again, you know, working in house, you've kind of got, you know, you, you, you kind of, you want to keep your job basically, don't you? <laughs> exactly. So you don't want to be too, too, too challenging or too blunt sometimes. And, um, you know, heaven knows that, that has got me into trouble in the past sometimes for being a bit too blunt and a bit too truthful. So it's, um, yeah, you've got to, you know, I think it's easier as an external to kind of go in somewhere and say, well, actually, you know, you're doing this and actually it's not really, 
it's not really working very well. I remember that I worked in, um, worked in an organization a few years ago and we had, um, we had a bunch of uh, linguistic consultants come in. Don't know if you've ever come across people that work in linguistics. No. Really, really, really interesting people. They can come in and they can look at your stuff and they can kind of work out the DNA of your organization pretty wow. quickly. Just from, what, just from what's written and said. And um, at, at the time I was working on a change program and um, yeah, the, the, these consultants came in and they, they, they asked to see meeting minutes, things that we were publishing on the intranet, managers' briefings, uh, you know, the whole gambit of, of stuff that organisations create every day. And they, they got down, they looked at this and they looked at the language that we were using and um, they said to us, and we had a bit of a debrief with them one day and they said to me, they looked at me because I was in charge of the change comms, change comms for the change programme and they said, um, do you realise that you are presenting your change as a Norman conquest rather than a Roman invasion? And there is an important difference between a conquest and an invasion. I also them in horror, you know, with, with sinking feel, sinking feeling, and um, thought. And when they explained what they meant by that, you know, they were absolutely right. They they stuck their fingers straight on it straight away. That actually, we were we, we were saying we were probably committing the cardinal sin of saying to employees in that organisation, the past is all bad. Forget the past. Nothing about the past was good. This is the new way. Get on the bus or leave. That was the normal conquest, right? Now, we all know that with change, it is better to bring employees with you and give them a bridge to cross from the old way to the new way and also preserve the the things that they really care about, which are often things like professionalism and self-respect. Those things are built up over years in organisations sometimes. When you lob a load of change at people, they can feel quite threatened by that. And they want to know what's actually going to survive and what they're going to be able to bring with them from the past into the future. So presenting it as more of a kind of a Roman invasion because the Romans were great assimilators. They never went in there and just imposed their own way. They assimilated other cultures into their own culture and that's how, that's how they were so successful because it wasn't about trying to suppress other populations, other countries. It was more about assimilating them into the, into the Roman way and making that Roman way better. So it's a really good analogy, I think, really, for kind of how to practice good good internal change communication is not to present your change communication as a Norman conquest, but more of a Roman invasion. If you ever come across some linguistic consultants, be careful about what they can find out about. You just be reading, reading your stuff because um because it was it was you know, very insightful and I've um, you know I've never forgotten that experience to this day. That is such a great story. I'm never going to forget that now. And that's something I'm going to check every time I see a change programme. <laughs> now, when researching for this podcast, I heard you speak at another one. And it was all about a phrase, or you were talking about phrases that kind of slightly great on you. So let's talk about this phrase. I'm guessing you're going to know what this phrase is, but tell us about the phrase and why it's. Uh, not one of your favourites, let's put it that way. Yeah, I was working in an organisation a few years ago and um, somebody from the HR department came up to somebody else in the team and uh, was, was, was waving a scruffy piece of paper and was very agitated about something. I don't, know, I don't know what it was. It was something that was obviously very important to them. And Colin had a conversation with them and could see there was, there was a, bit of a bit of a tense conversation. In the end, this person from HR said to her, look, I just need you to comms it up for me. Can you just comms it up and get it out there? 
we also looked at each other in the team and thought, comms it up. What does she even mean by that? And um, he said, so what do you do? You post it on social, don't you? You stick it on Twitter, on your Twitter, and you stick it on LinkedIn, and you say, I was asked to comms it up today. What do you think that that means? This huge outpouring of grief and angst from the profession ensued. Other people had also heard comms it up, or comms it out is another variation of that. Oh, Sprinkle your magic dust on this, uh, wave your magic wand, cover this in glitter, you know, the, the, the usual stuff that we've all heard. I wrote a blog, I wrote a blog about it, drawing on some of those kind of those, you know, some of the angst and, angst and rage that, um, uh, that people had kind of expressed in, a response, in responses to those social, social posts. And it, I actually then even morphed itself into a podcast with with myself and a few other other practitioners where we kind of debated the merits of comms it up and what it might actually mean in practice and actually whether it might be a positive thing because you know people are coming to you and asking you to comms it up then maybe they want your help and maybe they don't really know how to do that themselves so there are positive positives and negatives to that but i think it's you know i think in a wider sense you know would you ever go to a hr person and say can you just people this up for me <laughs> Or a person in finance and say, can you just numbers this up for me? Or can you just finance this up for me? Or something? You just wouldn't do it, would you? It just it wouldn't happen. So why why is it okay to come to a comms person and say, can you just comms it up for me? Or sprinkle this in glitter or wave your magic wand or something like that. It is what I describe as the litany of unintentional disrespect, where people say those things without really understanding how hurtful that can be, actually. Because guess what? I'm a professional too. You know, I've trained for a long time in this, you know, in this profession, I've got all the qualifications and the post nominals to prove it. Why on earth, you know, would you not, would you disrespect that and, you know, come and ask me to comms it up? So yeah, I think, I think it goes back to that journey that we're on towards being a kind of a truly strategic management function is that we still in some places don't have the respect that we need, you know, however hard we try to earn that, there is some places where you know, it's still not recognised that comms is, is a true profession. Yeah, the only time I ever heard that phrase, I have told this story before, but it was deliberately derogatory as a joke to make fun. But we had a content manager who once gave something to our creative director and just said, here, Joel, can you just press the design button on that for me? Knowing this is, this is a guy who knows everything there is to know about visual identity and brand and all the rest of it. And it was a deliberate joke. But I think you make the point, I think it's really interesting how we're on a journey. And it almost makes me think that internal comms needs its own campaign, <laughs> in a way, yeah. to kind of explain the benefits of why we exist and why we do what we do. It's quite an interesting thought, actually. We are so good about communicating things. And, you know, understanding the fundamentals of that and getting, getting stuff done. And it kind of makes me wonder why we know, well, why we, why we know good about promoting ourselves as a as a professional what we're really what we're really all about you know what is that i think that's a fast that might make a fascinating piece of research for somebody to kind of work trying to work that one out really because you know how can we influence stakeholders you know just society more broadly and i think this goes with pr as well as, as you know in a kind of a broader sense is you know how can we make people realize what it's really about and that not everybody can do it 
You are a prolific blogger. We've mentioned one of your most recent blogs on scepticism. I'm definitely going to put that in the show notes. I, I love that post. And I just enjoy reading your post generally. Why did you actually start blogging in the first place? What was the catalyst for that? So first of all, thank, thanks. I'm glad you, I'm glad that you really, really enjoy my stuff. I mean, I, I, what, what, what got me into blogging? I think a, a couple of things really is, is, first of all, I write to think. That's, that's, that's the main thing. And I've always been a sort of person who has to work things out on paper and, you know, keep, keep asking why. You know, there's that five whys thing where you keep asking why, why, why? And eventually you get, you get to the solution. Sometimes that's, that's just about writing things down and, and trying, to, trying to sort of work it out from the words that kind of emerge from the, from the pen or from the fingers on the keyboard. So yeah, just, just to try and work things out, I think, because some of those things end up, some of those kind of musings turn into, turn into full-scale blogs and articles. But, but also because I have a bit of a reaction, I think, sometimes to people presenting things as, as those fate complies and those 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 absolute truths in anything not just not just in telecoms but just in life generally and i've been like that all of my life for as long as i can remember and you know i wasn't into flares when they were in fashion i mean who thought flares were a great idea you know it's it's like not not going along with the bandwagon i suppose and probably being one of the first people to kind of call out that the that the emperor has no clothes i've always been that sort of person and i think that was probably enhanced by my education because I did science at university and that's all about you know evidence and finding re doing research and then being a tax inspector and again that kind of reinforced that kind of way of thinking as well about you know looking for the truth in people's accounts and, and numbers and things and when I see people saying things in telecoms or I see these these trends and bandwagons starting to gather pace in the profession and people trying to claim that certain things are our new purpose and I go no that's not right there needs to be a counterpoint made to kind of like even up the even up the scales there so sometimes the blogs are about trying to get people to think about things that are being presented as being absolutes and norms in the profession and you know just making people think a bit differently that's where the you know, skeptic blog came from which is really about you know, scepticism is not a negative thing. It's not like cynicism, which is quite a different sort of philosophic, philosophical um, outlook. It is more, it's more about questioning, asking the right questions and looking for the evidence. And I think all of us, whether we work in telecoms or not, would do a lot better if we ask a few, if you asked a few more questions more often. I think what I like so much about your writing is that you have a point of view. And I think what I see too much of is what I would call me too content. Is somebody else mm. saying the same thing yet again? I've read it a thousand times. You're wasting your time. You're wasting my time. But you take a very specific point of view. I might agree. I might disagree. I might be somewhere in between, but at least it's a new point of view. And I think that is is the secret to me that's the secret of your success in a way i don't know if that resonates at all i guess it does enough you know i don't i don't really say these things to be controversial or to upset people you know i have upset people with some of the things that i've written in the past and you know not quite unintentionally so and everything you know i've had i've had some some kickback on social media from time to time but um but yeah it's 
I read I read something by um, an interview with Jeremy Vine the other day. You know, and Jeremy Vine had, he, he's a bit of a controversial character, isn't he? Is that kind of show where there's the examine controversial topics and things. And and he he said something really interesting in that. And he said, in this day and age, he said people don't want to hear hear from experts. They don't trust experts anymore. You know, whether they're academics or or, or something else, they're more willing to rely on their own experience and their own opinion, whether that's valid or not. When they come across other people who have a different opinion or a different point of view, they're really upset by that or they're really astonished by that, that somebody somebody else could possibly hold an alternative view to them that may or may, or may not be equally as valid or, in, or invalid. I think that was a really great point that he made. And I think that explains some of the vitriol that you see on social media is, is that, you know, people aren't willing to listen to other people anymore. They aren't willing to listen to experts and they're not willing to listen to people beyond their own bubble. In some ways, you can't blame people for that because in our, in our modern age, you, know, you say there that you see things coming up time and time again, the same opinion. That's because the machines work in that way. The machines that run the algorithms give us that stuff. They put stuff like that in our feed that kind of plays to our own worldview and plays to our, you know, what we think. Um, in a kind of a kind of a group think sort of way. So you can't blame some people sometimes for not being able to see out of that bubble because that's what they're being presented with. And that's that just every time they see it, it reinforces that view. And that's why I think there is so much rage in debate these days, is because people are being polarized, they're being put into corners because of the way the algorithms work. It's becoming more and more difficult, I think, to hold an alternative view or to have an alternative viewpoint to, to others um, mm. in the modern context. I think we need to be careful about where that takes us. It's not really a good environment for collaboration, innovation. Diversity. Diversity of thought. However you want to kind of, you know, kind of frame that, it is a dangerous place to go. You make a great point there about filter bubbles. And I noticed through Brexit that a friend of mine who was voting a different way than I was voting, their feeds were showing them a certain type of content. My feeds were showing me something very different. And actually, I deliberately work quite hard to find content that is not what the algorithm thinks I want to read because I need to, we all need to understand how people with a polar opposite view are thinking and why they're thinking that because our job so often yeah. is to build a bridge, isn't it? So often to build a bridge between different camps, different thoughts, getting someone from here to there and without understanding both sides of that and where people are coming from, you can never be that facilitator of a bigger conversation that moves an organisation forward and that's true in organisations, it's true in politics, it's true in society. We have friends, not close friends, but they are anti-vaxxers. And my immediate reaction was, can I have a conversation with them? I really want to find out why they're thinking like this. What's driving them being against being vaccinated? Not, oh my goodness me, how awful, but rather the opposite. I was drawn towards that to find out more because these are intelligent people. So, They've obviously got a view. I need to hear it. So I think you raised such an important point there, Martin. Thank you. It kind of brings us on to our next subject. It's a kind of segue to ethics, which is what I wanted to mention next, because I know that ethics is of particular interest to you at the moment. 
Could you talk a little bit about how you see ethics directly in a practical way affecting our work? I think we tend to think about ethical issues in in a really sort of big context. So, you know, organisational wrongdoing and, and and that type of thing, whistleblowing, that type of sort of situation but the, the the fact is is that ethical problems or considerations kind of pop up every day in telecommunication practice um, and we need to be able to recognize when those things do occur and i think it goes back to this scales of justice thing that goes on inside organizations so there's a tension between these kind of sort of demands of leadership and the needs of employees and that's an ethical tension because sometimes leadership teams or organisations do things to employees that aren't fair or, or aren't equitable. Uh, you know, and let's let's look at a particular example with PO Ferries, you know, who sacked 800 people on the spot using a recorded video message. You know, what's the ethics of that? If you were in telecommunication in that organisation and you were consulted, hopefully you would have pointed out to them that actually that way of doing that kind of thing was not the ideal and was not the most fair and equitable or ethical. So these things pop up every day, every day. And it's not just around big stuff like that. It's around, you know, making sure that you're transparent and making sure that you don't introduce your own bias into, into messages or, or particular pieces of content, because, you know, we write a lot of stuff. Sometimes you write it, we ghostwrite it for leaders. Um, so there's an opportunity for there for us to put our own agendas into those into those pieces of content and those messages. So that's another thing that we need, need to avoid. But also some other things around, you know, getting feedback in a, in a way that's fair so that all employees have an opportunity to do that, making sure that feedback get, gets acted on, challenging leaders when they do things that might not be in line with the organisation's values. You know, so we talk about the say-do gap sometimes. So, you know, an organisation might say that it does one thing, but then does something else internally, you know, and heaven knows these days, you know, what happens on the inside shows up on the outside frequently. You know, at the top of all of that, we need to bear in mind from an organisational perspective, who are the most important stakeholder group for any organisation? And if you ask people what stakeholder groups the organisation has, they will often mention things like customers, suppliers, shareholders, investors. Employees might not even feature on that list but actually they should be right at the top because employees are the most important stakeholder group that any organisation can have and can't get anything done without them, frankly, for all sorts of reasons that they're they're important because, you know, they might dedicate huge swathes of their life to that organisation. They're probably financially dependent on the organisation. So treating them fairly and listening to them, you know, there's some, some, some huge ethical considerations there enabling that and doing the doing the right things and addressing that ethical tension and defusing it, you know, creating sometimes creating compromises. I think we sometimes think of compromise as a dirty word, but actually it's not. It's about finding a way, you know, between the demands of leadership and the needs of employees and, and in telecommunications do that every day in everything that we do. There are some really great guides out there now that are specifically for in telecommunicators. You know, I was involved with the CIPR inside, which is the CIPR sectoral group for in telecommunicators for many years. I remember one of the things that we produced was the ethics in action for in telecommunicators. That's a great guide to look that up because that's got lots of practical advice in it about how to identify and deal with ethical issues uh, in organisations. We'll put links to that. And also, I suppose I should mention this as I'm on the international board, but the IABC code of ethics as well. 
I think you're yeah. right. I think all of these are good guides. And then it needs to be translated into your organization's values, cultures, ways of working. But I think it all comes down to, well, it can be baked into what's your purpose as an internal comms team mm. within the organization. And if you like to think of your work at that level, even before you get to the plan for the year, what's our overall purpose and why do we exist? Coming back to the questions you've asked before, then I think, and we've heard this before, you know, being the conscience of the organization. Yes. And I know some comms people, yeah. they don't like that phrase because they think that's too onerous to be the conscience. But I think we just naturally are people, people. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> being the conscience of the organization isn't necessarily about the big stuff. I teach an ethics model module for another, another internal comps course. And one day when um, I was teaching that, uh, somebody said, you know, well, what are the ethics of the all staff email? So I thought I'll write a blog about that and just pull out some of the, you know, the, I don't know, the principles, the issues to consider and everything. It's probably the most popular blog I've ever written in terms of, in terms of number of reads. It's been read thousands and thousands of times all over the world, which I think is quite encouraging actually, because it means that people are interested in that stuff and they want to know. But, you know, if you want to, I don't know, a quick a quick read that gets you into that as a topic and, and kind of understand why, you know, what being the conscience of the organisation kind of looks like in practice, you know, that's a fair, a fair sort of read to have a look at and maybe uh, get into some of that stuff and then maybe do a bit of wider reading around it. More links for the show notes. Thank you. <laughs> have you got time, Martin, for those quick fire questions? Of course. So if you could go back in time, what careers advice would you give your younger self? To be probably be less busy, I think is probably something I would say, because back in the day, probably stressed about, you know, being busy and productive and having a diary that was back to back full of meetings and activities and things like that and everything. And, you know, I think when, you know, it was, it was brought to the front of mind when I kind of moved into independent practice where, you know, maybe your diary isn't full all the time um, and the work tends to come in fits and starts and it's feast or famine sometimes. And, and to not stress too much about the, um, the gaps in your diary when those gaps appear. And actually those gaps are quite beneficial because that's when opportunities happen. If you're so busy to the point of distraction, you know, and somebody comes to you to ask you to get involved with something, or maybe you, you don't have time for those kind of those chance conversations that we all have that often develop into other things. That can be a bit detrimental sometimes. So don't stress if you are not 100% busy all of the time. Create the space for opportunities to happen. I like that. And also for opportunities simply to think. I've never had a good idea sat at my desk. <laughs> It's always been somewhere else. No. It's on a walk or in the shower. For, for me, it's usually in the swimming pool because you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a devoted swimmer. So that's when you know when there's nothing else. It's, it's a mindless activity. You know, you don't have to think about swimming. Well, not too much. That's the place where a lot of big ideas happen. Places like that, definitely. Mm. Mm. And I think also you raised such an important point there about the the difference between being productive and being effective. So we can be in back-to-back -back meetings feeling like we're ticking things off the to-do list, but actually maybe none of those things actually moved you, your organisation, your team forward. So stepping back and thinking, what's the high value task here that I really should be doing that might not have a deadline attached to it, 
that is particularly, I should push that to the top of my to-do list is a good question, I think. So can you complete this sentence? World-class internal communication is? This is really easy. Oh. Democratic. Of course, we have a lovely circular conversation. It's one of my favourites. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you've mentioned a lot throughout this podcast, particularly Nita and, and Kevin's Engage for Success report. Are there any other books, websites, films, it doesn't really matter, that you think that uh, we should all read to better understand leadership, business, communications? This was a really hard one because there's so many to choose from. But I've gone back to an old favourite that I have here at my side. And listeners can't see, but I'm holding this up to the camera now. And you'll see the amount of um, sticky notes that are sticking out of this book. (laughs) Because it's one of my it's one of my favourites. It's it's quite an old book. It's called Open Leadership by Charlene Lee. Oh, um, and it's a it's a book that's it was published in the wake of the sort of the 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 emergence of social media and the transparency that that created in the world. And it it, it kind of examines this sort of the this tension between leaders wanting to be in control and being seen to be in control. And this this need to now be open, more open about what you do and what you stand for and how you do things. And it's a very practical book. It's got lots of lots of exercises in it that, that you can do yourself or that you can do with with others. I've used it with leadership teams over the years to kind of work out how open do you want to be, particularly in oh. the context of change. Because, you know, sometimes if you've got a, I don't know, even if it's a small leadership team, but if it's a big leadership team, you've often got different people in there who are willing to be open and some who are not. And they need to find a way of reaching a consensus of how open they actually do want to be with things like communication to be able to find that happy medium, Um, particularly if some of the things that they're communicating about, they don't know all the answers because lots of leaders don't, don't like to communicate about things where they don't have the answers. It's a great read. Like I say, it's a bit, it's a bit old now. It's probably it's probably 10 years, 12 years old now. But um, I think there's so much in there that's still valid um, and that can be used. And I probably I probably reference this book at least, at least twice a month. You know, it's one of those books that I keep going back to. I love this book. It was one that, I mean, we devoured lots of books when I wrote From Cascade to Conversations. So my, mm. my, my two lovely researchers that helped with that book but we reread this several times. And I think there's a line that Charlene uses in that book, which is something like, what is at the end of the day, the ROI of a handshake? And she's trying to explain that Mm. relationships are quite hard to quantify and we shouldn't attach, you know, a specific transactional financial value to every type of interaction. And if we're if we are trying to convince leaders too much of our worth and of the worth of communication, maybe that's a sign that they're not getting it at the end of the day. So finally, of course, you get your own billboard for millions to see and you can put on that any message you like. So what's your, what's your message going to be, Martin? Release your inner sceptic. For all the reasons that we've already talked about. (laughs) Ask questions. Don't take it at face value. Jump off the bandwagon and have an independent point of view. In a nutshell, Katie, in a nutshell. (laughs) 
Martin, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Casey. Thank you. So that is a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. For the show notes and the full transcript, head over to our website. That's abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash podcasts. If you did enjoy this episode, I would be incredibly grateful if you could give us a review on Apple Podcasts, as that will help other internal comms professionals find our show. Thank you to you for choosing the Internal Comms Podcast, whether you are a newbie to the show or a long-time listener. This show would be nothing without you. Please feel free to get in touch with me via LinkedIn or Twitter. Tell me what you want more of, what you want less of. I genuinely want this show to be as helpful as possible. Thank you to my producer, John Phillips, our sound engineer, Stuart Rolls, and my lovely colleagues at AB all of whom keep this show on the road. Until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts. Listener.